Bishas Lemer Asra Shlita, Bishas Rabbi Melitsky. It's a very big honor to be here. First, I'd like to thank the sponsors, uh, my, my dear Talmud, uh, Jordan, and his Rebbe in Shoshana, and, uh, and Charles and Ellen Fisher. Uh, it means a lot to me that you have, uh, you've devoted today's shir, um, uh, whatever you donated for, for the schusim, it should, uh, should be niskayim. Uh, th- this community is something very, very special. I've never been here before. I think I've eaten once in the pizza store uh, once, but uh, I've never actually been in the actual community proper and definitely never been in the shul, this beautiful shul. But as I was driving in this morning uh, through this community, these few blocks, I don't even know, you know how far the trum goes here, but I felt that there was, uh, I don't mean to overstate it, but uh, I felt there was a certain kedusha to this city. And the reason that I say that is because the Talmidim that we have from, from here are all outstanding. And I don't just say that every community that I go to, I really don't. There is something special, and I could speak about each and every one of the Talmidim that are here presently and that, um, and that are alumnus, alumni, and uh, each and every one of them, there's something very unique and very special uh, and there must be something uh, in the water, and the water was produced by the Rav and by, uh, and, and by all of you, and, uh, and there is uh, a tremendous siyata d'shmaya, I feel, in this neighborhood that you have been able to so successfully uh, develop such uh, amazing young, uh, young people, and, uh, and watching the, uh, the, their journeys throughout life, and as you see them developing and going to different communities, and and becoming either uh, you know tremendous in their own fields, whatever that field may be, and all very involved in the community is a uh, it must be a big source of nachas to you, but it's a very big source of nachas to myself. As the Rav mentioned, I uh, I had the I have the great schus of being the author of uh, of a, a series of books that were put out by Art Scroll. Uh, and it's, the series is called Great Jewish, and it started uh, with Great Jewish Letters, and I remember the Rav many years ago when I put it out, this is going back maybe uh, 12 years ago maybe, I think I bumped into the Rav at a chasna, and he was, uh, he gave me a lot of sipa kanefesh, because I think he told me that he was either giving a shear on them, or he was something, and he bought a lot of them, and he I don't know what he was doing with them, but he was, uh, he was, spreading, he was spreading the, uh, the gospel about the, uh, the letters of Gedalim, and, uh, and that gave me a, a tremendous chizuk, and that probably uh, inspired me to go on with the series. So we went on from the letters of Gedalim to the speeches of Gedalim. We have some books on quotes of Gedalim, uh, smaller books, and then um, and photographs of Gedalim, uh, more recently, I put out a book called Great Jewish Journeys, which is on the Kibrit Sadikim throughout the world, and telling, of course, the stories behind uh, the, the journeys of these great Sadikim. The book that I think is my favorite, personally, is, is this book, and the Rav has it over there in front of him. It's called Great Jewish Treasures. Um, this is a book that took me a long time to write, and it's a uh, collection of precious Judaica associated with Torah leaders. What that means is that 
I set out on a uh, journey, on a mission to find the greatest artifact of G'dayla Yisrael around the world. And, uh, but not just artifacts that they happen to own, that this Rebbe owned this mezuzah, or you know, this Rosh Hashiva owned this, uh, this Sefer, but it was, I was looking for very unique artifacts that embody the Gadol himself. So there's always going to be a story behind the artifact uh, that relates to the Gadol and sort of brings out, almost like a show-and-tell, uh, about the Gadol that really will teach you a lot about that specific person. Um, a classmate of mine from, uh, from my old days in, in Long Beach, Hebrew Academy Long Beach, David Hamill, is here, and uh, I don't know if he remembers, but I used to bring in for show and tell. My father, which is re- really where I got this from, is a, uh, Shalom, he was a, a collector of Judaica. He loved, he loved Judaica. He, has a, he had a very large collection of svarim and, uh, and artifacts, and he would go to auctions, and he would take me to these auctions as a little child, uh, whether it's a Sotheby's auction or a Kestenbaum auction, all these, uh, and it was just a, an amazing experience to see and to feel the electricity in the room when, when items of Kedusha were going uh, for large sums of money and everybody was really into it. And it, it sort of put something into myself of a, a certain love and an appreciation for not only uh, their articles and their svarim, but the G'daylam themselves. If, you know, if there was such a demand for what they owned, there must be something great about the, the owners. And so my father used to give me to take to, to yeshiva while other kids were bringing in their, uh, you know, volcanoes that erupted for show and tell. I would bring in like a, a 17th century uh, Megillah from who knows where and like, you know, and, and like it was amazing. Like people were uh, like my rabbi and were like, I think you should put that away. Like, you know, I don't think that this is really the place for it. But, you know, my father loved giving me stuff to bring to yeshiva to show and to, uh, and, and to share. But that's where the journey, that's where my love for Judaica began. And, uh, and, and one of the books in these series uh, was uniquely earmarked for these types of artifacts of G'dayim. So I wasn't looking for their letters or their books. I was looking for things that they owned and things that are still around, which is quite an amazing thing when you think about how many wars Klai Yisrael went through and the upheaval of Europe throughout two world wars and, and before that, you know, all the crusades and the inquisitions and that we still have things existent in the world from the times of the Rishinim, from the times of the Ga'inim even, uh, is quite incredible. And then, of course, there's many things that are post-war that, uh, that you could find in... Uh, <coughs> The rabbi asked me before where I, where I was able to find them. And, you know, a lot of things are in public museums. Today you don't have to travel the world to go to museums. Everything is sort of online, so th- that was pretty easy. Then there is uh, auctions that have catalogs of many, many things over the years that uh, were quite fascinating. And then there is private collections, which I'll speak about uh, towards the end. Now... Some people, when you discuss these things, are very excited about them, and they say, well, that's, that's so cool, that's amazing. You know, you found things, artifacts uh, that were owned by G'dayla Yisrael. Some people are very, like, they're not interested, and they don't see the greatness to it. I was sp- sitting 
at a table with a, with a big collector and a Rosh Hashiva, and the collector and I were like getting into this conversation about these amazing old svarim that were being auctioned off with this and that, and, and this Rosh Hashiva's like, well, I don't need that. I have like a brand new print of this Kitzais with like all of the, you know, all, all of the uh, footnotes on the bottom from Masada of Kok or Ritva. Like he didn't hear it at all. Like why do you need an old decrepit copy of a safe when you get a brand new one that's so, you know, modern and so, uh, so easy to use? And there are some people, and I get that, there are some people that do not understand this at all. They don't have a Yitzhahara for it whatsoever. And then there are some people that really love it and they appreciate it. And, uh, you know, and for them, this is like, uh, you know, it, it's something that they're in awe of. And I'm, I would be in that latter category. And there's actually a source for this. There's a Yerushalmi in Nadarim. The Yerushalmi in Nadarim says that there were the elders of Galilee, the Zikne HaGalil, and one of them said that the reason why I became very wise, how did I become so wise? How did I become so, so exceptionally smart? So one of them said is that Rav Meir's cane was in my possession and it imparted wisdom to me. Apparently owning the artifacts, having Rav Meir, the great Tana's stick, his walking stick, his cane, uh, in your possession, somehow, some way, it enables a person to themselves have, a, have the ability to tap into the greatness of that person. I think the Mesol Sisharim really at the beginning speaks to this also. He says that a tzaddik, uh, because he is adding so much to the world, a tzaddik uplifts the world. Whatever he touches, it becomes holy. And therefore, the things that are owned by a tzaddik also become uplifted and holy. He brings a, a, a riot to this, an example, by the stones that were underneath the head of Yaakov Avinu, and they famously fought and they became one stone together. He says, because it's Sadik, when he is able to come in contact with, with this world, doesn't leave it mundane. Whatever he touches, whatever he encounters, becomes uplifted. And so all of the things that were owned by Gedalim definitely has imbued in them extra sanctity, extra special holiness, and, and, uh, and great historic import, but also great spiritual import. When I was in Kaltaira, which is the Yeshiva in Yerushalayim, so the Rosh Yeshiva was Rav Shlomo Zalman Arabach, Zechit Tzadik Levracha, and I had a, uh, a job in, in the Shir, when I was in a Shir, that at the end of the Shir I would uh, go over to him and he would give me the keys to his office. He would give me uh, uh, his notes. And then I was supposed to run back to his office and, uh, and uh, put his notes on his desk and take his hat and bring it back to him in time for Mincha. It's an interesting story. Just as an aside, I had a friend who I yarshined this job from. I inherited this job from. He had it the, the semester, this man before me. And... Um, so one time, Rav Shlomo Zaman was looking for his keys in his pocket to give it to my friend, and he couldn't find it. He was looking all over, he couldn't find it. He was getting flustered because it wasn't just the keys to his office, it was the keys to his house. And so my friend said, you know, maybe the Rashiva left it in his office. I'll go and I'll, I'll run there and I'll, I'll check. He said, okay. So 
my friend went and he looked all over and it wasn't, uh, wasn't on his desk, it wasn't on his couch, it wasn't, you know, and then he, uh, he saw Rabbi Zaman's coat was hanging in the office and uh, he, uh, he said, oh, maybe he left it in, in his coat pocket. So he put his hand in the coat pocket and sure enough, the keys were there. And he was so happy, he went running back to Rabbi Shlomo Zalman, and uh, you know, he met him in the middle of the hallway, uh, you know, and, uh, on the way to the base medrash, and he said to the Roshiva, I found the keys. And he was so you know, excited, and Rabbi Shlomo Zalman was always smiling, but now he was really smiling, he was so happy that Baruch Hashem, the keys were found. So he asked my friend, he says, tell me, where were they? Were they on the desk? He says, no, 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 they weren't on the desk. Were they, you know, were they on the, on the chair? No, nope, they weren't on the chair. Were they on the, you know, I don't know, in the, on, on the floor? No. Nope. He says, so, so where were they? So he said, they were in the Rashiba's coat pocket. At that point, Rav Shlemizaman's smile immediately disappeared. He got red in the face, and this isn't like a typical Shlomo Zalman story, so you'll forgive me if I'm not, you know, filling the narrative that you want to hear, but this is, uh, this is I think, a, a very powerful story. People tell me, don't tell over that story. It's not a nice story to tell, but I think it's the greatest story to tell. He got very upset, and he said, tell me what, what, what happened again. He says, yeah, I, 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 I couldn't find it anywhere, so I put it in my hands... He says, well, you took your hand and you put your hand into my coat pocket? He says, yeah, and that's where the key... Then he says, he says, you took your hand and you put it into my coat pocket. And all of a sudden my friend was realizing that this wasn't, this wasn't a good thing because he says, he says, maybe when your hand was in, your, in my coat pocket you took my wallet as well. He couldn't understand, if Shemazam was such an Isha Alacha, that he couldn't understand how a person would be able to take their hand and put it into somebody else's rishos. You have no permission to put your hand into somebody else's coat pocket. It's not, it's not your domain. You, he, albeit he had the best of intentions, but it was, you know, and, and my friend said, if I, could, if I had a shovel, I would have dug my grave right then and there. I felt so bad. But Rav Zaman, of course, wasn't trying to make him feel bad. He was trying to teach him a lesson. And he taught, by extension, me a lesson. I've told the story a million times because it's a, it's a very powerful lesson in general in life that we have to really give each other space. We're not supposed to look into other people's medicine chests and, and drawers. And I'm, I'm even talking about a person's spouse and kids. Like, it's very important to give each other privacy and to not invade that privacy of others. It's a very important halachan. In any event, so that's what my friend took from his job. What I took from my job is every day I was holding Rav Shlemizaman's hat, and me being this, you know, wannabe collector, I always, like, uh, you know, was thinking, like, how do I get this hat into my possession? This is, you know, this would be amazing. I already had, like, a lucite case, you know, picked out with a little, you know, gold, uh, you know, sticker or whatever you call those things. And I was like, every day, like, you know, every day I was like trying to like figure out how, I said like, I was gonna, I, I knew the size because I could see it in the inside. It was like a beaten, battered Yerushalmi beaver hat. And I was gonna go to, a new, go to a store, get him a new one and say, you don't want this one, you want that one. And I had this uh, every day, that was like all that was bothering me. And I went to like a very chashava, like Kyle guy, like a senior, Kailagan called Tyre, and I was like speaking over my problem with him. 
and I said, like, you know, how do I get that hat? This is what I want. He says, let me give you an Eitzah. He says, instead of trying to get his hat, why don't you try to get what's under his hat? I said, his yarmulke. <laughs> he said, why don't you try to get his chachma? Why don't you try to learn from him a little bit? And that was a lesson as well, but I ignored him. And, um, and I, I always wanted to get the hat. I, I didn't end up getting the hat. It's interesting, in, in, the, in the book I bring, I have a Gemara, one of the pages of a Gemara that was owned by the Vilna Gain. And not only was it owned by the Vilna Gain, it had the Vilna Gain's wax from his candle, like he must have been holding a candle over it and there was wax drippings on the candle, uh, on the Gemara's pages. And then he had his glosses on the side and the margins of his Gemara. This is a Vilna Gain. This is uh, something that's extremely valuable. And there's a story that's told that somebody, I, I presume it's the same Gemara, brought this Gemara to Rav Shlem because it was offered to him, he was a collector, and the dealer who was trying to sell it to him was, uh, you know, said you could borrow it for, for a day or so and then come back to me and let me know if you want to buy it. <coughs> so he went to Rav Shlem and asked how, how much does he think he should spend to buy the Vilna Gain's Gemara. Now you have to just understand, before I continue, that the... The Shlomo Zalman knew a thing or two about the Vilna Gain. First of all, I think he descended from the. I think the name Shlomo Zalman is itself. He was from the parishes and the Shlomo Zalman. He was a descendant of the Vilna Gain, I believe. Um, and he davened every day in the Grosh Shul. He made the Grosh Shul famous in Shari Chesed um, in Yerushalayim. And of course, he, I mean, he was a. He was. He, he knew the Gain very well. If there was anyone in the on planet Earth that appreciated who the Gain was, it was Shlomo Zalman Arbach. So. He asked him, like, how much should I pay? You know, like, it was probably, the person was probably asking at least $100,000 for this Gemara. So, so, Shlemizam didn't even see, like, what the interest in it was. He says, I don't understand. He said, why don't you just go to the, he says, you shouldn't pay more than you, than a regular Gemara would cost in a Svarim store. I don't know, what is it, 12 shekel? Or, you know, 20 shekel? Or, you offer him 12, 20 shekel. <laughs> he says, 20 shekel? He says, this is going for like 100, this is like 300,000 shekel, 400,000 shekel. He says, it's ridiculous. What do you need it for? He says, he says but Rebbe, it has the wax drippings of the Vilna Gain. He says, so bring me a regular Gemara. I'll drip some wax on, on, on the Gemara, and, and, and it'll be fine. He said, but it has the, it has the glosses, the never-before-published glosses of the Vilna Gain on the margins. He says, he says, so ask the dealer if you would mind if you'd photocopy it, and then you'll have the glosses. He didn't see it at all. He was like that Rosh Hashiva that I was telling him about. There are people that understand this as something Chashiva, and there are people that are, it just is, you know, so there's two camps to this. I don't blame, I don't understand the people that don't get it, but I don't blame them either. But, but I did see that Rav Zaman himself would have told me that I'm a fool for trying to get his hat. Because, like, that's, who, why? What do you need my hat for? What does that do for you? It's interesting. I was once telling this story at a women's, uh, like, a luncheon in a fancy restaurant in Manhattan for an organization, and, and there was a woman that comes over to me afterwards. She says, I take from your story that you collect Rosh Hashiva's hats. I said, all right, yeah, okay, you could take that from this story, fine. She said, would you like my husband's hat? And I said, like, well, it depends who your husband is, I don't know. She says, my husband was of Hanach Libowitz, the Rosh Hashiva of Chavitz Chaim, who was just nifter like a year or two before that. 
and she was a Zivak Shane, she was a second, uh, you know, from, she married him much later. Um, there's a cute story that she, when she was being made up as a kala for that kasna, she was telling her makeup lady who's told me the story that she says, I'm getting the best bacher in Chavetz Chaim. <laughs> but she said that, I said, wow, I, you know, I'd love to have his hat. So, you know, so the next day I met her at her home, a block away from yeshiva, and, uh, and she climbs up on a ladder on a little step stool and she takes down from the top of the closet her husband's late husband's hat and I have it in my office and like Chavetz Chaim guys come and it's like it became, my, my office became like a mecca for Chavetz Chaim guys they're like wow can I just hold that and I said alright you know fine but don't you know don't breathe on it too hard or... anyway but that's uh, so there's two ways of looking at these things and uh, you know it's far from me to, to say which way is the right way which way is the wrong way but personally I find tremendous fascination uh, with uh, with uh, the items that were owned by G'day Yisrael. I, I just want to go through a few of the, uh, few of the items in the book, uh, very briefly. Um, since you have it in the library, you can, I guess, borrow it, or, uh, you know, I think it's out of print, actually, not to make it, you know, not, not to, you know, wet sales, juice up sales too much, but uh, I don't think it's possible to buy this book right now, but uh, hopefully they'll reprint it. Um, so one, one piece that I wanted to show you is... Um, this is a, it's, it's a piece of uh, wood. It's a, if you look closely, it's a, a piece of, uh, of wood with like certain engravings on it from, um, it's not two pieces of wood, it's just the front and the back. And uh, it has Hebrew writing on it and, uh, and, and, some, uh, and some beautiful uh, designs, like Middle Eastern design work. Now, this actual piece was bought on an auction down in Florida by a dentist in Miami Beach. His name um, was Dr. Barry um, Ragone. He was a Miami Beach dentist, and he saw it on the floor of an auction house somehow in Fort Lauderdale. And one of these auctions, you know, it wasn't a Jewish auction house, it was just a regular, you could buy couches, you could buy whatever you want there. There happened to be this piece of wood just sitting there. And he told the, the owner that he'd like to buy it. And it, anyway, it went for $37.50. I actually spoke to this dentist. I tracked him down. And he told me the whole story. Anyway, they, he did a lot of research into what this piece of wood was from. It turns out that it's probably one of the most valuable pieces of wood in the world today. It comes from the Rambam's Shul in Cairo, Egypt. The, the famous shul called the Ben Ezra Synagogue, um, which had the Cairo Genizal, the famous uh, storage house uh, that was in the wall of the, Geniz in, in, of the shul, like in the Ezra's Nashim, and it was discovered maybe a hundred years ago that in this storage room where people would throw Seamus, there was Kisveyad manuscripts of the Ramba, manuscripts of, of, from the Ga'inic period, tremendous stories. They basically, Solomon Schechter, uh, you know, from, uh, from the JTS, he was the one that really went and he sort of looted the entire, uh, entire Geniza. A lot of it is found today in, uh, in Oxford. Uh, some of it is found in uh, the Jewish Theological Seminary. It was, it was basically split up into a lot of different collections throughout the world. Um, but in this famous shul is where the Rambam was said to daven. 
And this was traced, this piece of wood was part of the Arun HaKadosh. And he ended up selling it for a, for a, a king's ransom, like a, a tremendous amount of money, uh, to two museums, I think Yeshiva University and, uh, and maybe the Israel Museum in, in Israel, um, bought it together, and they share it, you know, it goes back and forth. But he told me that it was, it was discovered to be so valuable at a very pivotal time personally. He was going through a lot, of, a lot of difficulty in his own personal life. And he said that um, the funds from its sale enabled him to weather a perfect storm of crisis, illness, and personal loss. And he told me that in retrospect, I didn't discover the door, it discovered me. Anyway, that's just one example from the book. Uh, I wanted to uh, share with you uh, another, this is I think my favorite, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, everybody knows, um, and if, you know, if people that know Rabbi Yaakov and have read his books and understand a little bit about him, the first word that you'd associate with Rabbi Yaakov is emes. Em, he was a tremendously truthful person. He never told a lie, he said. Uh, you know, on President, President's Day, I think that's a, that's a very appropriate uh, thing to say. Uh, but I think it was actually true by Rabbi Yaakov that he never told a lie. And, um, and so I was looking for a piece that would really embody that about him. In fact, the name of his sefer is Emes Yaakov, Truth to Yaakov, because that was really, he was very, he very much um, put a premium on always telling the truth. And, and even when it hurt sometimes, he would always go and tell the truth. So before he was a Rosh Hashiva in Tarvadas, uh, he was a Rav in Toronto. And in Toronto, he gave a shear to Balabatim in a shul, and it was on the Rambam, a shear in Rambam. And he, uh, and one uh, Pesach, the Chalmayit Pesach, the, the members of a shear beforehand got together and, and made a, bought a becher, a, a beautiful silver cup, and they engraved in the cup uh, an inscription to Rabbi Yaakov, that was from Toronto, it was for the Shir and Rambam, it was given Chalamayit Pesach, the year that it was given. Now, this is a picture of the front and the back of the cup. Very simple, you know, beautiful, nice, standard type of becher. And that should have been the end of the story. But it wasn't. Rabbi Yaakov was seen a few days after Pesach going into a uh, pawn shop to, you know, for no reason, there was one of the Balabatim saw him take this becher into the pawn shop. Now, you know, you go to a pawn shop when you want to pawn something, when you have, uh, you want to raise some money, you don't have, you know, so you sell your watch, you sell your earrings, you sell your, your becher, whatever. So, and he was spotted, unfortunately for him, by one of the Balabatim, who immediately jumped to the conclusion that I think we all would have jumped to, that, you know, a rabbi is selling the present that we worked so hard to buy for him and to inscribe for him, and we gave it to him so nicely, and, and now he's like, he's pawning, he's hocking the, the, the cup that we gave him, like, how could that be? And so, of course, this guy comes back and reports to all of his chevra that uh, what he saw, and they didn't know what to do. It was a big hullabaloo. And finally, you know, they said, okay, one of us has to go and, uh, you know, and tell the Rav that that's just not right. You know, we went through a lot. If you need more money, we could talk about giving you a raise, but, like, it's not appropriate to go and take our cup and, you know, and, 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 and pawn it to, in a pawn shop. Like, so they went to Rav Yankov and they said, you know, you're spotted, you're busted. 
you know, we saw you taking the, the, the Befer into the, into the shop. Like, you know, my high, like, what, 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 how could the Rav do that? Like, it meant a lot for us when we went and we gave you the cup. He says, it meant a lot to me also. He says, so why did you take it into a pawn shop? He says, because I wanted to know how much it cost. Wanted to assess it. He said, well, that's not nice either. What difference does it make how much it costs? It, it's $500, $300, what is a chiluk? He says, you don't understand. He says, you gave me this cup as a gift. A gift is considered to be income as far as the Canadian government is concerned. He says, so it's taxable. I have to declare this on my income taxes as, as income. He says, so I went to a pawn shop to find out how much it is, and I, I put that amount on my, on my tax return as, as taxable income. That's Emes Liakov. That's the, the truth, the, 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 the ethics, the, 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 the perfection of Rabbi Akiva. I told this to a, a, a huge Rashiva. He was looking through my book, and he read it, and he, was, he went crazy. He says, I don't think that you have to do that, and I don't know what he's, I, I argue with him, I don't think that's ridiculous, but um, to Rabbi Yaakov, it wasn't ridiculous. To Rabbi Yaakov, he, he felt this is the, he wanted to do everything Kedasa could do to the letter of the law, and so this really, this cup, this is like a, a great example of what I tried to do in my book. I tried to find, not just, you know, it wouldn't be interesting if it was Rabbi Yaakov's, uh, you know, uh, whatever, summon box. I wanted to find something that has a story that really brings out to people like a show-and-tell item that you can understand who's Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky through the piece. This is very, very interesting. Um, there is, if you go to Shmuel Kamenetsky's house in Philadelphia, it's a very, very simple house. I don't think it was re you know, decorated once in the, in the 60, 70 years that he was living there. He has a very interesting chair in his living room. This is what the chair looks like. It's a very, like, a, a nice, elaborate type of chair, uh, like a big, you know, hush of a chair from a dining room set. And what's the story behind this chair? So there is a woman in Philadelphia whose name was Mrs. Jenny Miller Fagan. Um, now, she was a, a widow. Her husband was a very wealthy man. She actually was married twice. Uh, her second husband was extremely wealthy, and he died. They never had children. And, um, and she became one of the greatest Bali uh, tzedakah of her generation. Every month, when Shmuel told me the story himself, Every Rish she would go to the post office and she would send large donations to 50 terror institutions throughout Europe. And many terror giants, such as the Chavitz Chaim and Ervaron Kotler, held her in the highest regard and they sent her many letters. These are, I have a picture of like a, some of the letters that were sent to her, addressed you know, by all the great Rosh Hashivas throughout Europe. Every major yeshiva, whether it was uh, Reb Baruch Bar Leibowitz, Reb Aaron Cutler, uh, Reb Kahneman in, uh, in Panovich, uh, Chavitz Chaim, Reb Meir Shapiro, uh, Reb Shimon Shkop, like all the, the household name Rosh Hashivas of Lithuania and, uh, and Eastern Europe, uh, in general, were, uh, were they received tremendous amounts of money, and she was very trusted. Shmuel told me that 
uh, she would go to the um, to the post office to wire the money, and one one week, one Rosh Chodesh, she didn't have the money in her in her account that to wire, but they trusted her anyway. Like they wired her, and they you know they trusted her that she would make good on the money afterwards. Uh, that's how respected she was. So when all these Rosh Hashivas came to America, so they always made made it their business to make a stop in Philadelphia to visit her home and to thank her personally. Whenever they came into her home, she had a palatial home in the Strawberry Hill section of Philadelphia and a big mansion, and she would have this chair. This was only reserved for G'dayla Yisrael. So Rebbe Chanan Wasserman, when he came to America, he sat in this chair. Rebbe Baruch Ber sat in the chair. Rebbe Shimon Shkup sat in the chair. Uh, the Lubavit, the Friedrichar Lubavit Shereva sat in this chair. And, uh, and she was very close to Shmuel Kamenetsky, and when she retired, when she she when she she decided to down downsize a little bit, she couldn't you know keep up this big mansion anymore. She moved to Atlantic City to Seifiamel, and she the last Purim that she was in Philadelphia as Shalachmanis to Reb Shmuel and his wife, who was just Nifteres a few uh, a month or two ago, she uh, she sent this chair, this this very treasured chair. Um, of uh, I call it the chair of Gedalim, uh, and it's uh, it's an amazing uh, it's an amazing chair that shows the um, the a symbol of the majesty of Tara and the nobility of a woman who supported it. I have a friend who's a very big researcher, historian, and he's he's doing he's writing a book. He's in the midst of writing a book about uh, Jenny uh, Miller Fagan. Uh, you know, there's a lot to be said. He's doing a tremendous amount of research on her, and it all starts from Shmuel's uh, living room. Uh, I know it's getting late. I don't want to keep you. Uh, I want to just share with you one last uh, item and uh, and the message that goes along with it. There is one of the probably the most valuable item in the whole book is a crown, um, a, a Torah crown that was owned by the great Rishon Rebbe. Uh, this is uh, this is what it looks like. It's uh, it's invaluable. There's there's simply no way of putting a, a price in this. It's solid gold. Um, it was crafted by the Tsar's uh, goldsmith. It has a huge diamond on the top, rubies, emeralds, um, uh, bells, and a tremendous work of art. And uh, this was owned by uh, the great Rishon. The Rishon Rebbe was a Rebbe that um, was symbolized majesty. He was Malchus. He believed that a Rebbe has to be nobility. In fact, he was so, he lived in a palace. He lived with such opulence that the Tsar of Russia himself became jealous of how fancy he was living and drove him across the border to Sadiger, which is one of his children became the Sadiger Rebbe. And uh, they also have this opulent sort of lifestyle. Now, the truth is that as much as he, he, uh, he acted this way, it was all really uh, very, it was a show because he felt that Hasidim should look up to their Rebbe as, as a king, as nobility. That's the way he felt. But privately, he, he really was a very simple person. And there's a great story that he used to have golden boots. Imagine wearing boots made of gold. I mean, you know, I know women that, you know, buy boots that, might as well be, uh, be, be, uh, be gold because they're that expensive. But, um, but he actually had golden boots. And one night, Matzai Shabbos was Kiddush Lavana, 
and everybody was standing together, Kiddush Levana, and then the Rebbe was freezing cold, a Russian night, and, and there was ice on the ground, and then everybody like sort of went back to their home after the Kiddush Levana was over, and they noticed that there was blood on the ground. They couldn't figure it out until they realized that the Rebbe had his golden boots, but without soles. He didn't have soles on the bottom of his, of his boots, because he wanted to, at the same time, be a regular person. He wanted to be able to identify with even the poorest people in his, of, his, of his community, but he wanted to outwardly have the appearance of nobility, but really privately uh, feel the pain of the individual. And this crown was in the possession of somebody uh, who had the most uh, phenomenal collection, a private collection of Judaica. Now, to get to him was not an easy thing. I had to use a lot of connections, as I did for a lot of these things in the book. So it was a lot of detective work. You had to network, and you had to you know, find out who has what, and where to get it, and who to speak to, and how to, how to get an entree into these people's homes. So I have a friend who is a very big uh, curator at the, uh, the Jewish Museum, and she's very involved with Sotheby's auction house. She got me into this person. It's a chassidah who owns it? He lives on in the up. He lived in the Upper West Side, and he had an apartment, a beautiful apartment. And I, uh, they, he let me come up, and I told him what I was doing. I was working on a book about artifacts of Daily Israel. He says, "This isn't the place for you." I, and I was very disappointed. I was like looking forward to like hitting because I had heard that it was the place for me. He says, "No, no, no." He says, and "This is where I live." He says, "We have to go up a few flights of stairs. That's where you want to be." All right. So it was like these big, like pre-war apartment buildings in the Upper West Side on Riverside Avenue, and um, so we went up in the elevator, and a, an apartment that was all like there was no living space in the apartment. It was a huge apartment. Maybe it was like even the size of this uh, this whole hall, if you can imagine an apartment this size, and it was wall-to-wall Judaica. But not Judaica, you know, that you go and buy in the store, and you know, from you know, from 2013. This was; these were all items that were from the 16th century, the 17th century, 18th century. The, when the first Jews came to America after the war, and 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 maybe in the in the 60s and the 70s, they they had a lot of these priceless Judaica. They needed to sell it, unfortunately, to pay, you know, to start up their life again. And they came to him. They knew that he had money. And he, uh, and he was buying. When no one else was really interested in Judaica, he was. And he bought up thousands of items. I was talking to him in this apartment. I was sitting on a chair and schmoozing with him. And he says, he says, like the chair that you're sitting in, it's the oldest Kisisha Leo in the world today. It's from Italy. I jumped out of that chair. <laughs> it's like I thought Leo Navi was like kicking me out. Like, you know, like it's from 16th century, like Italy, beautiful, like gilded arms and like, you know. And so he took me into a back closet of his and, and it was this crown was there. He had, I, I can't even, if I, it would be it'd take a, a whole nother hour just to describe some of the collection that he had. It could have filled 20 Jewish museums. A Jewish museum, you think you go there and wow, it's like, a, you know, it's nothing compared to what this man had. Now, the reason why I'm telling you this is because he was nifter about four years ago. And, and I heard that he was nifter, and I was very curious to read his obituary because 
In my mind, I thought that the obituary would definitely, like, the, you know, the title of the obituary would be, you know, the most, uh, the greatest Judaica collector in the world. And he was, by far, by far. Not a single word in the entire article spoke about his Judaic. You wouldn't even know that he was a collector. You wouldn't even know that he was wealthy. It spoke about his chesed. It spoke about how he, uh, you know, how he, he, he supported Kailulim. And he started this yeshiva, and he was, uh, you know, a major benefactor of that yeshiva. And he was, uh, you know, and he gave a dafyaim yeshir. And he was, uh, you know, not a single word about the collection. And to me, that was a very, that was like a, you know, a, a moment that, you know, a life-altering moment for myself because I realized that as as important, and I hope that what I'm saying now is not undermining what we were talking about for the last hour, but. As much as it is important to you know, have an appreciation, I feel, for artifacts and for Kisveyad, for Svarim, uh, these are the national archives, these are national treasures, no doubt. But at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, it's not really the main part of life. Sometimes it could be a, a distraction even. You know, people might think that if I buy all of these fancy things, if I own these old Svarim, that means I don't have to learn them because I own them, I, you know, if I don't, I have, why do I have to learn it if I, if I own it? If I own the original crown, why do I have to be involved in his thought, in his, in his Kedusha, in his Yerushalayim? But of course, that's not true. Of course, you know, ultimately, the, the, the measure of a person is how much they've contributed to this world and what they have given to other people, the chesed, the tzedakah, the amount of learning that they've done, the mitzvahs that they have, that they have uh, accomplished, the families that they have built. And, uh, and that's really the, the major thing. Of course, this is chashav. Of course, you can learn great lessons. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's not important. The main thing that's important is what we do every single day with our lives. And uh, that was uh, an eye-opening moment for myself. And uh, um, again, just, you know, I think each and every one of you are doing that because the, the products that we have in yeshiva uh, from this wonderful community under the Rav's uh, amazing leadership is really, uh, it's so special. You know, I, I think I want to live here actually because, uh, you know, I, I feel, you know, you feel just davening here and, and schmoozing with people and seeing the people. It's just a real community. It's really nice, fine, upstanding yidden that, you know, that mean it and they, they do it. and. Uh, and that's really, at the end of the day, what it's all about. And I, I give you Yashar Kayach, and I thank you very much for having me here this, day, this morning, and, uh, and I wish you all a wonderful day. Thank you very much, Rabbi Bamberger, for a wonderful talk. If you want to see any of the books, I have them here on the table. You could browse through them. And I want to thank Janice Listiger for setting up the breakfast this morning. And, and Barry said you did it. And you said very good. Okay. <laughs>